0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, March 16th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Forgive this commercial for our monthly audio product, Cato Audio. In the roundtable for the March edition of Cato Audio, I spoke with Cato Vice President Chris Preble about his new book for Libertarianism.org, Peace, War, and Liberty. The book considers the past, present, and future of U.S. foreign policy. This roundtable is a monthly staple of our Cato Audio program, available wherever you get your podcasts. History does not stand still and uh, the United States with regard to its interactions with uh, countries around the world is long and checkered and embarrassing and triumphant and a lot of different things. And and of course, everything leads to the next thing uh, with respect to foreign policy uh, and a lot has changed very recently. So, uh, we're talking with Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, who has authored a new book on behalf of Cato's libertarianism.org project, Peace, War, and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy. Chris, you're solo here on the Cato Audio Roundtable. I am. So, uh, to begin here, what are the most important elements to understand about uh, foreign policy as understood by the founders, and what the what they viewed at that at, the, at those in those early years as the proper role of
1: this new country uh, in the world. Right. So thanks for having me, Caleb. It's been a great project to work on with um, the folks at Libertarianism, and um, you know it's given me an opportunity. I'm a historian by training, and it's given me an opportunity to sort of talk about U.S. history and then relate it to the present day, and if you go back and you look at how the founders th- thought about foreign policy, what they wrote, um, they were quite anxious that wars or the, the danger that the United States would become involved in wars would grow the power of the state. Um, uh, even folks like George Washington, um, a military man himself, um, was quite adamant that um, overgrown military establishments, as he called them in his farewell address, uh, would be a threat to liberty. You quote uh, James Madison
0: here in the uh, early chapter. Uh, He's at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. He He wrote or said, The means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war. Whenever a revolt was apprehended throughout all Europe, the armies kept under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people.
1: Right. So uh, again, the founders' views on standing armies and on military establishments were were um, were clear, um, and they were informed by history, not just recent history, but ancient history, and so. I think what's striking to me about the Constitution in particular is it did create a stronger federal government than the Articles of Confederation, and part of the reason for that was concern about the ability of the the individual states as effectively sovereign states to defend themselves against one one another and foreign threats. Um, And so the constitution did create a stronger federal government with the ability to, um, through union, um, better defend against foreign threats. And yet, despite that the constitution also cont- includes some very st- clear limits on the ability of the federal government to mobilize resources for war. Um, it does it by, for example, limiting appropriations for the army um, and requiring Congress to come back to the people repeatedly to fund the army, which effectively prohibits uh, you know, a standing army um, itself. They did allow for the And so the the reference, of course, is to raising an army. They did allow for a Navy to be maintained, but they saw the Navy as much less of a threat to liberty in the same way that standing armies were. They also, of course, wanted the Congress to have to um, vote on matters of war and peace, that the the power to go to war was vested with the Congress, not with the executive branch. Um, And they fully expected uh, that... You know, if if it were necessary for the United States to mobilize to to repel um, uh, foreign threats, uh, then the the Congress would vote for it and reflect the will of the people of a of a willingness to to undertake this and raise the funds necessary to prosecute the war to a successful end. Uh,
0: the military, of course, is very different today than uh, at the times when when muskets were distributed. Uh, And purchased, and was a a craftsman's product. Yes, yes. the the musket. Mm -hmm. Um, But we live in a world where we do have a standing army. Yes, Uh, war powers have been viewed as by many people as almost inherently executive in a in a very fundamental, powerful way. Yes. you you re- referred uh, again to Madison and he said there is no greater wisdom than uh the delegation of war powers to uh the uh Congression or the or should say L- the legislative, legislative branch. branch yeah um but it it's he 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 actually called it the most important clause of the, of the document so Madison specifically was he concerned that an uh overweening executive would seek out these powers and seek to aggrandize these powers? Or was he concerned that the legislature would abdicate? Because that seems to be where we are now, it's like there's an extent to which... Uh, right, because I remember Barack Obama saying, "I have the power to do this, but I'm going to be kind and right, ask
1: right. Congress to approve." <laughs> right. Uh, when we we're recording this, recent, recent, just recently, Congress did sort of exercise its uh, its authority in a very sort of odd way, or, or I shouldn't say odd way; it is odd. But the the reporting at the time said that that it was a unique uh, and rare act of defiance on the part of Congress to affirm. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. It's absurd to affirm its constitutional obligation. This is an act of defiance. Uh, That's how far we've come. Um, uh, I think that Madison believed that the branches would balance against one another and that they would be jealous of their powers and prerogatives. And I think that hasn't happened and it it happens less and less, Uh, the part that he... Somewhat anticipated, and you can see this in Federalist 10, but not to the same extent that it's it's happened. Um, the parties and and partisanship uh, uh, have um, have eroded the three branches and their sense of sort of responsibility and balance, um, such that um, it is now quite routine for republican members to support wars started by republican presidents and 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 the same thing with democrats um, but generally uh sort of leaving partisanship aside generally an unwillingness on the part of members of congress to to affirm uh, and assert their prerogatives under the constitution <laughs>
0: Of course, war is not the only thing that engages foreign policy. Of course, we here at the Cato Institute like to point out that free trade is one of the most powerful uh, weapons, if you will, on behalf of peace. Yes. Um, But with respect to interventions uh, in other countries, how has the understanding of the role of the United States changed? in
1: our 200 plus years? Well, it's it's changed very dramatically. I think that the key sort of frame of reference that I always go back to is something that the historian Walter McDougall teaches at the University of Pennsylvania um, sets up as a distinction between the Old and New Testament. Uh, under the Old Testament v- vision of the United States role in the world, the United States would set itself up as an example for others and create a system of government uh that provided uh, benefits uh, to the people uh, th- through liberty and to allow them to build uh, you know prosperous fulfilling lives, um, and that other countries would wish to be like us um, uh, you know we were you know the city on the hill we were the new Israel is the way it was described at the time. And I think those ideas held for um, most of the the first uh, hundred plus years of American history. Uh, the second uh, act, as it were, is more like the New Testament, where the United States is a crusading uh, spirit. It's not enough to be simply the example to others, but that we would go and promote actively around the world. That was a very dramatic departure from um, America's founding traditions, the most famous um, uh, speech of the sort of reflecting this early sentiment is John Quincy Adams' speech on 4th of July, 1821. That's the speech in which he said, the United States goes not abroad in in search of monsters to destroy. and yet, by the early uh, 20th century, uh, the United States did, of course, become involved in a number of foreign conflicts, and then progressively more so as the 20th century wore on. Such that now, uh, in 2018, the United States is actively engaged in at least, uh, you know, in at least seven different places, and arguably, the war on terror um, encompasses effectively the entire planet. And so, there is a there is we are. Um, quite literally, um, in a constant state of uh, war and and military intervention. Uh, In your chapter on the
0: world wars and their lessons, you write, alas, the confident predictions that commerce would reduce war to obsolescence seem hopelessly naive when juxtaposed against the human carnage that occurred during the first half of the 20th century. So was that actually a mistake to believe that uh, commerce would
1: dramatically reduce war. Maybe, was it overstated? Simply, it was overstated. I think that it's it's wrong to accuse uh, folks like it wasn't just someone like Norman Angel, but also uh, uh, Cobden and Bright, who led the Anti-Corn Law League in the, in in Great Britain in the in the mid nineteenth century, who believed that trade would be a vehicle for peace. John Stuart Mill wrote about it as well. Um, obviously, Immanuel Kant. The, these people. Uh, Argued that war was costly and risky, and that the gains to trade could deliver benefits vastly greater than the, the gains that were acquired, like you know, through most of human history. Which is, you take other people's stuff. Um, that's that's not the way that it you know human history has evolved. Thankfully, um, and and Angel who wrote. Uh, before the First World War, that um, that war, you know, would simply didn't make sense. It didn't make sense for countries to believe they could get rich by uh, by by conquest, um, and. And he was right in the sense that uh, the war started, but those who initiated the war believed it, World War I, believed it would end quickly with a decisive victory. It obviously did not. Uh, And I think the lesson of the 20th century is that these massive world wars, great power wars are extraordinarily costly, and the benefits are uh, fleeting, if if at all. Add to that now uh, the presence of nuclear weapons, which raises the cost of aggression um, um, astronomically, right? that the, the benefits that would accrue to a country that takes on a nuclear armed state. Um, uh, are seem quite small uh when confronted with the risk of of total annihilation and so the, you know i think that there are a number of factors that explain the absence of great power conflict since 1945 that is not to say that wars have ended they certainly have not it is not to say that great power conflict is impossible it is possible and yet I think many people understand that the, the cost and benefit you know, equation is is vastly in favor of defense as opposed to offense.
0: So is it appropriate to think of war uh, as being about resources? Because if we think of trade as you know delivering these tremendous gains and as uh, nuclear weapons being used only as this last resort because you know if you're there to take stuff, there's not much stuff to take if you in, a, in just... an
1: irradiated hellscape. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I, I think that um, if we perceive that that trade or gain or greed as uh, Hobbes put it um, is the primary driver of of warfare. Then, then trade really does drain away from it. But of course, uh, drain away sort of the appeal of war. But of course, countries also go to war for matters of prestige and honor and glory and those sorts of things. And those are less pronounced also than they were hundreds of years ago. But they still exist. Countries uh, and people still resist. Uh, you know. Uh, Foreigners imposing on them their will uh, and and sometimes desire to impose it on others. And so I think you have to allow for the fact that war is caused by things other than, than just greed. Between the end of World War II and
0: 9-11, we still had also pretty dramatic shifts in how Americans view foreign policy. Yes. Uh a lot of the Vietnam experience I think left a lot of Americans with a general profound distaste for war mm-hmm. uh, but since then war has become less costly in a sense with respect to uh humans right That is throwing a lot of human beings at a, at a conflict is uh, We don't have to do that as much anymore. Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah, I wrote about this last year, sort of comparing the various war memorials, uh, of which there are now many, uh, on the National Mall. Um, uh, We... Americans have uh, or the United States I should say US troops have done the fighting Americans have mostly watched uh since 9/11 uh you know wars now go into the the 18th year um in in Afghanistan uh and the total number of Americans killed in those 18 years is uh, a bit over 7000 the number of names carved in the Vietnam Memorial in black granite is over 58,000. It seems inconceivable today to imagine a a conflict like Vietnam that is so uh, costly in terms of human lives Um, and American lives, uh, something perhaps as many as three million Vietnamese were killed in the Vietnam War. Um, But the fact that we do not have... Um, Americans uh, dying in these conflicts n- uh, nearly on the scale that they did in, in Korea and Vietnam um, uh, does not mean that the, these wars are, are, are short or, or actually they're, they're quite long, right? They're being fought in a way that, as you note, sort of separates most Americans from having to consider these costs. Um, and, um, and so we are on a sort of autopilot, as it were, it seems. Since 9-11, the United States
0: has you know, hastily passed uh, authorizations for the use of force, which is that different or the same as a declaration of war? It's
1: not the same as a declaration of war, it's not. Um, we have not had a declaration of war since World War II. All right. So s- since
0: then, we've had multiple authorizations of the use of force that were essentially open-ended. Yes. Um. But even those relatively open-ended de- uh, declarations, authorizations, have uh, been stretched so far beyond right. the original intention. I mean, right. it's to the point where we're using declarations meant to fight Al Qaeda uh, to fight ISIS, an avowed enemy
1: of Al Qaeda. Correct. So, I mean, I'm glad you 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 frame this. So, of course, the Korean War was was not fought under a declaration of war. It was you know called a police action or or something along those lines. But imagine uh, under the rubric of the Tonkin Gulf resolution uh, Lyndon Johnson claiming the right to send. US troops into Zimbabwe for example there's there's something just utterly absurd about that and that and yet under the authorization to use military force passed immediately after 9/11 and the subsequent authorization pertaining to uh, war in Iraq in 2002 um, it is not inconceivable that um, US military personnel could be sent to virtually any place on the planet under the guise of one or both of those AUMFs. So, moving forward, it seems that, as we mentioned
0: earlier, we have a standing army. The uh, executive has been aggrandized with respect to war powers. (laughs) Yes. Uh, the, The ability for a sitting US president to engage in hostilities around the planet is in some sense, unlimited. Yes. So how do we get back to uh, what you you would view as an appropriate role for the
1: United States throughout the globe? Right. So um, this material in the book um, sort of continues on the work that I did 10 years ago in the power problem and sort of lays out a set of criteria that I think that that... Americans, all Americans, but especially those Americans who are entrusted uh, with the responsibility to to oversee these things, that is our elected officials in Congress, um, because the United States is a, a wealthy country. We are a large country. We are a powerful country. We will have the ability to use force on a moment's notice. Virtually, no matter what we do, I, I don't dispute that that is going to happen. But precisely because we have that power, it's incumbent upon uh, U.S. officials and 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 sort of. Uh, Frankly, all Americans to sort of consider whenever someone proposes that the US military be deployed to a particular place to ask some very specific questions about what is the mission? uh, How long will it last? How much will it cost? um, What are the prospects for actual victory? are the American people sufficiently supportive of this mission that they can sustain it uh, as long as necessary? We just don't ask these questions anymore. We just become involved militarily and then, and then effectively the president dares the Congress to cut off the funds for the troops, which they don't do. Um, so I think um, it, it really is about sort of turning the question of intervention back to why as opposed to why not. Because we can. Is not a sufficient answer. We always can, uh, and I think American presidents have 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 figured this out quickly. Um, and even those who, from time to time, resisted it, including most recently Barack Obama and Donald J. Trump. Um, even when they might be inclined to resist it, they are often surrounded by people uh, or or buffeted by the various cable news networks uh, on all the places where they should be intervening, where U.S. troops could be making a difference, where the United States' honor and prestige is sufficiently engaged that requires us to do more. And and they need a, a set of criteria. We all need a set of criteria to sort of assess... Um, whether or not that is the appropriate uh, uh, policy, because and I want to I want to emphasize this, because there are many instruments of American power and influence besides the U.S. military. You know, I served in the military. I'm proud of it. It is a it is an outstanding institution and the people who serve in it deserve our respect. And yet they are only one set of, they, the military are only one set of tools or instruments of US power. And we have to be more confident in the other things that the United States can and has done um, uh, to, to spread liberty and to, to spread the, the vision of the good life. And that that other technique, the other methods that we use are precisely those that were favored by the founders. That the United States should create a society that others wish to emulate and that we should we should be consistent and we should speak to these principles uh, and adhere to these principles. And I think if we did that, um, uh, the world would be frankly not merely a safer place, that is let fewer wars, but also a freer place. So that is great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, as a, as
0: an aspiration, yes, I have a lot of uh, high regard for that. Um, but you know, there are incentives built into the structure of our government. Um, there are incentives that are built into how media gets distributed today. The uh, fiscal policy yes. uh, here in Washington D.C. plays a role. Um, to what extent has debt? yes the ability for the government to borrow you know endlessly more money right. as 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 we record this the national debt just hit 22 22, tr- $22, $22 trillion dollars yes. um, to what extent does debt you know we're not throwing a lot of human beings or i should say we're not killing a lot of us soldiers relatively yes. speaking it, yes. it's it's it still happens a lot but it's dramatically smaller numbers yes to what extent is the fact that there is no immediate consequence with respect to the federal budget, with right. respect to taxes, with respect to cutting, having to cut federal programs in order
1: to fund this war? Right. How has that enabled war? It has enabled it um, hugely. Uh, you know, it is it is hard to overstate the um, importance of debt and deficit spending um, to um, prevent. The advocates for for war uh, from spelling out to the American people what Americans will be expected to forego or what sacrifices they will be required to make in order to prosecute these wars. And let's be clear, um, even the long and seemingly interminable conflicts under the war on terror have consumed trillions of dollars, but trillions of dollars over a period of time in which the uh, US economy has generated hundreds of trillions, uh, more or less, You know, uh, the total military spending is in the United States is somewhere on the order of three percent of GDP and shrinking. So, by those standards, it's easy enough for advocates for military spending to say this is this is tolerable. What, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that is that we're spending well beyond our means. That that we are financing these uh, wars and maintaining the ability to fight more of them uh, on debt um, and. Ultimately, um, some hard choices will have to be made, but those hard choices have so far been postponed or evaded. And I think that the Congress uh, and the executive here are, are, you know, sort of joined together in not confer- not presenting to the American people the hard trade-offs between these things, which is why. By the way, many people are familiar with Dwight Eisenhower's Farewell Address Military Industrial Complex speech in January of 1961. I also include in the book um, a long speech that he gave called The Chance for Peace, which was um, one of the first speeches he gave as president in, in April of 1953. And in that speech, Eisenhower spells out the trade-offs. He spells out the opportunity costs. He explains to the American people, if you buy a ship, you can't buy a hospital. If you buy a plane, you can't buy this much wheat. That is precisely the discussion that we do not Ever have in this country, and it's because uh, when when Eisenhower was saying this, people actually cared about debt and deficits. They allowed, you know, there were some of them, and we obviously went into deep into debt to prosecute and win the World War Two. Uh, and yet, people like him cared deeply about fiscal balance. Uh, the number of people it appears who actually care about such things is small and shrinking. Thankfully, um, some many of them are uh, avid listeners to Cato Audio and General sponsors to the Cato Institute for which I'm I'm immensely grateful but I'll have to call him out I can't help it Mick Mulvaney uh, who's sort of the act, you know the acting um, chief of staff now in the White House and a former congressman but also former head of the office of management and budget was asked prior to the president's State of the Union address will there be anything in here about a debt and deficits and he effectively said and no one cares about that anymore and it was just—it was a shocking statement from a person who, once at least, did genuinely care about such things. Uh, and I think it—it it, it tells us just how far we've come.
0: I want to close with this because I, I feel like this might be a hard case, and maybe it's maybe it's not a hard case at all. Venezuela, mm. uh, the United States has had a wide and varied relationship with Venezuela over the past thirty-plus years. Yes. Right, they're not very far away. Yes. Um, So the the potential for for something going bad in Venezuela could affect the U.S. in a in a significant way. Yes. There are people there who are trying to assert liberties that they once possessed in Venezuela. They are essentially, in in a sense, freedom fighters. Yes. And they are taking on a government that has uh, over the last ten. 10 years or so, has really just ratcheted up the control and uh, has left the vast majority of Venezuelans dramatically poorer and less free. Correct. What is the US role in a country like Venezuela? Is it even appropriate for the US to say, we recognize this person as having won the election and is the new rightful leader of this country? Is it... In a in a sort of a back channel way, trying to support the people who are fighting against the government, right? Or is it just to stand back and just let things play out?
1: I, I think there is a a critical distinction between the United States recognizing a person who can point to the Venezuelan constitution and and the laws within the Venezuela and sort of make a case for why they are the legitimate, uh, why he or she is the legitimate leader of, of Venezuela, in this case uh, Juan Guaido uh, versus Nicolas Maduro. Uh, the, the problem with the Venezuela case right now is that we are also aware of multiple instances in which the United States government um, actively Uh, worked with elements within Venezuela, including at least three different occasions where um, U.S. government officials met with um, military officers in the Venezuelan military who were contemplating a coup against the Maduro government, Um, other incidents in which the United States met with opposition figures. And that, to me, seems like a kind of meddling in the affairs of a sovereign state that if it were done to us, we would object. And I think it's worth just sort of taking a step back, leaving aside the history of US involvement in the domestic politics of many states in our hemisphere over the last uh, three quarters of a century or so, a little bit longer than that, actually. What upsets me most about the way the Venezuela story is playing out is the suggestion that uh, liberals in Venezuela, classical liberals even libertarians, if you will, who desire a state that is respectful of rights and property and, um, and human rights and free speech and all of those things, that they can't possibly prevail without the covering fire of American armaments or the threat of the use of force. And as a libertarian, I find, those, I find that suggestion, frankly, repugnant these ideas that we believe in are good and they work and they don't require the united states military to be promoting them by force they don't require the united states government to be picking and choosing the winners of of uh, you know who will prevail in a, in, a, in a foreign election so i do talk about this in the closing passage the closing passages of the book talk about the importance of seeing human liberty as springing from many sources not just from the United States of America uh, and i think that's the kind of world that that i want to live in All right.
0: The book published by libertarianism.org at the Cato Institute is Peace, War, and Liberty Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy. The author is the Cato Institute's Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies, Chris Preble. Uh, The book will be available very soon, uh, in the next month, in fact, Uh, and you can get your copy at Cato.org. Chris Preble is author of Peace, War, and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy, available now for pre-order. This discussion was part of our monthly Cato Audio program, available as a podcast everywhere. And you can, of course, follow the Cato Daily Podcast on Twitter at Cato Podcast.